Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Like I was saying, the past few weeks we've been talking about post-resurrection encounters. Jesus has been risen from the dead, and now he is visiting and appearing to several of his disciples and several people. There's somewhere between, I think, I believe between, scholars would say around 11 or more appearances of Jesus post-resurrection, and we've looked at a few of them. We're going to look at another one here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read for a little bit here in uh, chapter 24, verse 13. It says, Later that Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, two of Jesus' disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about 17 miles. They were in the midst of a discussion about all the events of the last few days when Jesus walked up and accompanied them in their journey. They were unaware that it was Jesus walking alongside them, for God prevented them from recognizing him. Jesus said to them, you seem to be in deep discussion about something. What are you talking about so sad and gloomy? They stopped and the one named Cleopas answered, haven't you heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem unaware of the things that have happened over the last few days? Jesus asked, what things? The things about Jesus, the man of Nazareth, they replied. He was a mighty prophet of God who performed miracles and wonders. His words were powerful and he had great favor with God and the people. But three days ago, the high priest and the rulers of the people sentenced him to death and had him crucified. We all hoped that he was the one who would redeem and rescue Israel. Early this morning, some of the women informed us of something amazing. They said they, want the, or they said they went to the tomb and found it empty. They claimed two angels appeared and told them that Jesus is now alive. Some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly like the women said, but no one has seen him. Jesus said to them, why are you so thick-headed? Jesus, full of grace and mercy and truth and love. Why do you find it so hard to believe every word the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary for Christ the Messiah to experience all these sufferings and then afterward to enter into his glory? Then carefully unveil to them the revelation of himself throughout scripture. He started from the beginning and explained the writing of Moses all and all the prophets, showing how they wrote of him and revealed the truth about himself. As they approached the village, Jesus walked along ahead of them, telling them he was going on to a distant place. They urged him to remain there and pleaded, stay with us. It will be dark soon. So Jesus went with them into the village. Joining them at the table for supper, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and then gave it to them. All at once, their eyes were opened and they realized it was Jesus. Then suddenly, in a flash, Jesus vanished from before their eyes. Stunned, they looked at each other and said, why didn't we recognize him? Didn't our hearts burn with the flames of holy passion while, he walked bes- while we walked beside him? He unveiled for us such profound revelations from the scriptures. In this post-resurrection story, we can easily identify with the two men on the road to Emmaus. In this narrative, they find themselves in a season of confusion, hopelessness, and disappointment. Anybody can relate to being in a season of confusion, hopelessness, and disappointment. In this state, They do some things well, and they fail miserably in other ways. Can anybody relate to that? Ultimately, partially through the way they chose to posture their hearts, and fully through the grace of Jesus, they end this journey 
with burning hearts and a one-on-one encounter with the resurrected Messiah. Let's step into the message or to the passage now. And let's begin to talk about some of the things they do right, right? Let's get the good news first. In verse 13, the scripture starts telling us that these two disciples were walking together to Jerusalem. In this season of confusion, hopelessness, and disappointment, they continued to practice what Jesus taught them, which was to walk together in community. In Luke chapter 9 and in Mark 6, Jesus sends his disciples out to spread his words, right, to spread the gospel, to heal the sick. And how does he do this? He sends them out two by two. He sends them out together two by two. This practice is something that the disciples carried on even after Jesus ascended into heaven. We see this in Peter and John, right? As they go to the gate called Beautiful, they go up together and encounter a man who was lame from his mother's womb. And together, the man, well, first the man asked them for alms and together they say, silver and gold have I not, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they see a man restored to life once again, that he, he was healed and stood up onto his feet and walked. They did that together in community. We see that also in Paul and Silas and several others of the disciples after the resurrection, that they continued the pattern Jesus taught them, which was to go together two by two and remain in community. Being in community is about more than going to the same church. It's about more than attending the same service and sitting under the same roof roof on a Sunday morning. I would even say this, community is about more than bringing each other's meals when we're sick. And believe me, that's part of community, but community goes deeper than those things. Community is this, real community Being a community is about seeking the kingdom together and manifesting heaven on earth together. Kingdom, it's about, community is about seeking his kingdom together and manifesting it to the earth together, amen? This is being in community. Real community doesn't mean we will be in relationship with one another until we disagree. How many of you have seen that? We'll be in community together. We'll go to church together. We'll walk together until we don't see eye to eye about something. And the the disagreement then separates us. I would even venture on to say this. The road to genuine community will have its bumps in the road but the bumps actually will grow you tighter together, not pull you further apart. Real community, real community is about seeking his kingdom together and manifesting it on earth together. Why two? Why does Jesus tell them to go two by two? Ecclesiastes four, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Matthew 18, and again, I tell you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. One could put a thousand to flight. Two can do what? Put 10,000 to flight. Notice the synergy. It doesn't say two can put 2,000 to flight. No, it multiplies right? It multiplies. Two actually puts 10,000 to flight. There's a reason the body, that, that it's the body of Christ, right? How can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? So the disciples do this well. They continue walking in community together, even though they're in the season of hopelessness and disappointment. Verse 13 also tells us that they are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now listen, we have to put on our prophetic eyes and ears for this one. You ready? Emmaus in the Hebrew 
comes from a root word that means a place of burning. Comes from a root word that means a place of burning. So even in a season of seeming hopelessness, confusion, and disappointment, they were moving themselves to a place of burning. To a place of burning. Often when we find ourselves in seasons like the disciples were in, it causes us to become cold. It causes us to become distant. Some have even left faith altogether in seasons like this. Others may not leave the faith, but they, sleep, they may slip into a state of unbelief and in doubt. They may still believe that Jesus died for their sins, but really much beyond that, there's, there's not a lot of growth. They may stay in church, but only out of obligation and tradition, not because their hearts burn for the desire of all nations. They may warm a pew, but their hearts are cold. And to some extent in this story, we're going to see that these two on the road to Emmaus are not far from being in this place. But though they are feeling hopeless, they continue to journey and move to a place of burning. To a place of burning. I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in this kind of season, it would be easy for your heart to become cold to the things of God. It'd be easy for your heart to become distant to the Father. But I want to encourage you, even in that place of disappointment and confusion, continue posturing your heart and moving to a place of burning. Continue moving to a place of burning. Push past the hopelessness and the confusion and posture your heart in a place of burning. Amen? Even though they were in a place of confusion, disappointment, and hopelessness, they continued walking together in community to a burning place. As they were doing that, they were talking about Jesus. And as they were talking about Jesus, guess who shows up? To them, it was a stranger. They didn't know who it was who came up to them on their journey. And this is where some of the weaknesses begin to be revealed. Where some of the struggle begins to come to the surface. Let's look at it here now in verse 17. Jesus walks up to them and he says to them, you seem to be in deep discussion about something. What are you talking about so sad and gloomy? And I love this because Jesus blows past what is proper etiquette here, right? He sees these two men on the road that are in deep discussion. These strangers, they, they, they don't know who he is, right? These strangers that are in deep discussion. Let me ask you, if you see a stranger in deep discussion, is your first instinct to walk up to them and say, hey, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a bit pushy, right? It's a bit pushy. So Jesus walks up to them, blows past all etiquette, right? He walks up to them and says, hey, guys, you look kind of down. You look like you're in deep conversation. And not only does he interrupt, he goes, what are you talking about? Like it's any of his business, right? Jesus walks up to them, asks them, why do you look so downcast? Why are you so sad and gloomy? What are you talking about? Cleopas kind of seems annoyed of this stranger coming up and, act, and asking them what they're talking about. And so his answer is actually somewhat sarcastic. It's If you do a study on the words that he uses here and the, the way that he uses them, you'll see that he's actually being a little sarcastic with his comments. And he says here in verse 18, 17 and 8, or verse 18, uh, Cleopas answers, haven't you heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem unaware of the things that have happened over the last few days? Are you unaware? This is the biggest news in, in all of the land right now. And you don't know what's going on. 
So they begin explaining, Cleopas begins explaining to the stranger about this prophet from Nazareth who performed miracles and wonders. How he spoke with power and authority. How he had great favor with God and with man. Then you get to verse 20 and 21. And it says this, as they're explaining, it says, but three days ago, the high priests and the rulers of the people sentenced him to death and had him crucified. Now pay attention to this next verse. We all hoped that he was the one who would redeem and rescue Israel. We hoped, past tense, they had lost hope. These disciples walking on the road to a place called burning, they had lost hope. Hopelessness has an effect on us. Scripture tells us in Proverbs 13 that hope deferred does what? Makes the heart sick. Hopelessness creates a lens that distorts your perspective. Your perspective literally becomes sick. You begin viewing the world and your situation through a lens of disappointment and hopelessness. And it distorts the way you view the world around you. We had hoped our marriage would last, but it didn't. We had hoped that our kids would follow Jesus, but they're not. We had hoped that life would look different by now, but we're still struggling. We had hoped that our friendships, our deep friendships would last, but a fence came in and took those away from us. We had hoped that our bodies would be healed by now, but we're still struggling. And even though we've prayed over and over again, we are still in this fight. And we had hoped that we would have received healing by now. When hope is lost, it leaves you in a state that Jesus found these two disciples, sad and gloomy. Sad and gloomy. Hopelessness creates a lens that distorts our perspective. It doesn't allow us to see beyond the fog that's in front of us. And what it does then is it creates a depression. It creates, as we'll see here in just a little bit, a cynicism. And hopelessness is where these disciples found themselves in this season. And you know, I'm sure that many in this room could say they found themselves in seasons of hopelessness and disappointment and in disillusionment. I'm thankful for scriptures like Hebrews 6, though, where it tells us that we have an unshakable hope the word actually says that our hope is unshakable. It is an anchor for our souls. I wanna encourage you, let me just say this. If you find yourself right now in a season of hopelessness, go to Hebrews chapter six and read it. I'm not gonna take time here this morning, but go to Hebrews chapter six and read it and see that you are promised an unshakable hope and that hope becomes an anchor for your souls. Jesus tells us that Christ in us is the hope of glory, amen? Hopelessness distorts our lenses. Hopelessness does something else to us. We'll see this now in verse 22 and 24. In verse 22, it says, early this morning, some of the women informed us of something amazing. Other translations say it's something bewildering. 
They said that they went to the tomb and found it empty. They, what's that word? Claimed two angels appeared and told them that Jesus is now alive. Some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly like the women said, but no one has seen him. Hopelessness does something else to us. It breeds skepticism. It breeds skepticism. The disciples use this language. They claimed, the women claimed that they saw these angels. We went to check it out for ourselves and yeah, the body was gone, but nobody saw him standing there, right? These disciples obviously didn't believe the women's report or else when Jesus walked on them, their expressions wouldn't have been sad and gloomy. If they would have actually believed the women's report that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead and that they had seen Jesus, their discussion would have been completely different than what it was. If they were to, if they were to believe the women's report and not said, put into a, um, went into a state of skepticism, Jesus wouldn't have had to have looked at them and rebuked them in the next verses. But because they were in a state of hopelessness and confusion and disappointment, that hopelessness then moved them into a place of skepticism where they couldn't believe the report of their disciples, their fellow disciples. They had to see it for themselves in order to believe it. And because they were in a place of skepticism, they were in a place of hopelessness and disappointment. And when Jesus found them, they weren't overjoyed where they should be in a season of excitement. They were instead in a season of sadness and gloominess because their hearts became skeptical. Skepticism will prevent you from recognizing his presence. If you allow your heart to become skeptical, it will prevent you from recognizing his presence. Instead of recognizing and enjoying his presence, you become the manifestation police. That's not worship. That's just attention grabbing. them dancing around up there, or them raising their hands. They're not worshiping. They're just begging for attention. They're just putting on a show, right? Or my favorite, that's just emotionalism, right? They're just getting hyped up, just like somebody would get hyped up at a baseball game, right? That's not the presence of God. That's just emotionalism. And you become the manifestation police, as as I like to call it, where you become judge and jury of whether or not what God is doing in someone else is real or not because you have allowed your heart to move into a place of skepticism. And skepticism will prevent you from encountering the presence of God every single time. A skeptical attitude will prevent you from experiencing his presence in such a profound way that it makes you emotional. Skepticism will prevent you from encountering his presence in such a way that that you won't have the joy of the Lord where you want to dance before him in his presence. Skepticism will prevent you from encountering his presence every single time. Listen, I'm not a crier, okay? I, I'm not the type of guy that, that cries easily. But there's, let, let me just say this. We were at a movie one time, and I'm pretty sure it was a kid's movie, right? We're there with my mom and dad, Amber and I and the kids. We get to a scene in the movie that's kind of, kind of sad, kind of emotional. I look over, and Amber is weeping at this cartoon, Right? I look over the other direction and my dad is weeping. And I know he's going to listen to this later. You're welcome, dad, for telling everybody. My dad's got a tender heart for sure. I look over at my mom and we're kind of looking at each other like, what is going on? 
right? I'm not, I'm just not a crier, right? I've, I've seen up. The first part of up didn't move me at all, right? Some of you know what I'm talking, only parents in here know what I'm talking about. But something about the presence of God moves me to tears almost every time. Something about the presence of God gets me, like I said, it it moves me to tears almost every single time. And you can live with skepticism to guard yourself from emotions, from that hopelessness that you have. But you'll never be able to experience what the Bible calls deep calling unto deep. And believe me, listen, I I grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal church. I went to an even crazier Pentecostal charismatic Bible school. I've seen when people are attention grabbing. I've seen when people are putting on a show to get attention. But it doesn't discredit the real genuine presence of God that caused David to dance in the streets and the prostitute to weep on his feet. And I would take, I would, I can, I'll put up with the the fake to have the real every single time. Some have allowed the pain of not seeing a miracle cause them to become hopeless, which breeds skepticism. We've prayed and prayed and prayed. We haven't seen it yet. And if you allow your heart to move into a state of hopelessness and then deeper than that into a place of skepticism, then I've seen it before where it becomes offensive to watch somebody pray healing for another person. You actually become offended when somebody lays their hands on another person and believes for healing because you've moved into a place of skepticism. I've been there too. You think in your head, you want to believe, but you just have in your mind, this isn't going to work. And your heart is moved into a place of skepticism. And you know, there was people in Jesus' day that were skeptical of his miracles as well. Even the ones that happened right in front of their eyes that were undeniable, there were still people who were in such a place of skepticism and hopelessness that they couldn't see what was happening right in front of their eyes. Because what does hopelessness do? It covers our eyes. It puts a lens over our perspective. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus encounters a man, a religious leader that goes by the name of Jairus. Jairus runs up to him and says that his daughter is sick and asks Jesus if he would come and heal his daughter. On Jesus's way to the house of Jairus, the Bible tells us that the daughter dies, passes away. By the time Jesus and Jairus get to the house, the Bible tells us that there, were, there was a crowd that had already developed. And in the house, there were mourners that were wailing and they were playing the flute. They were playing the song of the funeral song, the dirge over the daughter. And Jesus walks in and he says something that doesn't make sense once again. He says, what are you doing? She's not dead, she only sleeps. The Bible says that the mourners begin to ridicule Jesus. They're skeptical of this man named Jesus. They've already lost hope for their daughter who is now dead. And they begin to ridicule Jesus for his word. So what does the Bible tell us that Jesus has to do? He takes those people and he tells them, to go outside. 
he makes them leave because of their skepticism. We know the rest of the story. Jesus goes into the room with Jairus' daughter. He grabs the hand of the little girl who was dead and he pulls her up. And the little girl begins to breathe once again and stand on her feet. And Jesus raises the little girl from the dead. Amen? Amen. Those people had an opportunity to be in the room and witness Jesus raise that little girl from the dead. But because of their skepticism and cynicism, they had to leave. Jesus had to put them out of the house. Because they were skeptical, they could have witnessed Jesus raise their daughter from the dead. What a story to tell but they missed it because of their skepticism. They missed it because of their cynicism. Skepticism will keep you out of the room where things are raised from the dead. Skepticism will keep you out of the room where things are raised from the dead. Listen, I refuse to allow disillusionment and disappointment and hopelessness to take me to a place of skepticism that keeps me from his presence. I refuse to allow confusion or misunderstanding to keep me from being in his presence because I wanna be in the room when he walks in and grabs that dead thing by the hand and raises it back to newness of life. I don't want to miss the opportunity that when hope actually steps into the room and raises things from the dead, I don't want to miss it and have to stand outside because I've allowed my heart to go to a place of hopelessness and skepticism and cynicism. Don't allow your heart to be cynical and skeptical. Refuse to allow, refuse to allow disappointment to move your heart into that place. But church, continue to move your heart to a place of burning. Move your heart to a place where, where of hope where it says that even when I don't understand, I refuse to be skeptical because your word is true. Verse 25, after the disciples, Cleopas and the other disciple had shared the story, Jesus answers them in verse 25. He answers their hopelessness and skepticism with gentleness. Why are you so thick-headed? I thought maybe this was a translation error. So I looked it up. Turns out the word means foolish, unintelligent, and my favorite, stupid. (laughs) Jesus answers, why are you so thick-headed? And this seems like such a heavy, harsh word, but you know what? Sometimes Jesus has to wake us up. Sometimes Jesus has to come. Have you, have you ever met those people that they, they just don't get it unless you're just straight to the point? Like you almost have to hurt their feelings, right? In order for them to understand it, right? Sometimes Jesus has to come in with a hard word, to wake you up out of your hopelessness and your skepticism. Why are you being so thick-headed? He asked the disciples, why are you being so thick-headed? Listen, these aren't just random Jews walking down the road. These are disciples. They walked with Jesus. They saw his miracles. They heard him speak. You would have thought that being with him for as long as they did would have been able to get them through this season of death and burial. But it didn't. And there are so many of us who follow Jesus, 
who grew up in church, who have sat through teaching after teaching, who have read our Bibles that do the exact same thing in these types of seasons. We allow hopelessness and skepticism to come in. And Jesus tells them, why are you being so thick-headed? I love what he says in verse 26. In verse 26, he says, wasn't it necessary for Christ the Messiah to experience all these sufferings and then afterward enter into his glory? Listen, this is a little side note, but I believe it's a word for somebody here. Jesus is saying this, that the journey was necessary even though it was painful. Let me say that for somebody here this morning. The journey that you've been on was necessary even though it was painful. Why was it necessary? Because on the other side is resurrection life. On the other side of the journey is a life that you can't even comprehend. His life is on the other side. His zoe, as the Hebrew or the Greek tells us, the God kind of life, the resurrection life is on the other side of the journey. In verse 27, Jesus continues on. And in his grace, he begins to patiently, slowly and kindly walk them into revelation. They didn't see it. They should have, but they didn't. And Jesus begins to, from all the way in the beginning, the Bible tells us, he starts with the beginning and works his way through all of the prophets and begins to show them himself. This is one of the beautiful things about Jesus that even when we become hopeless and skeptical, he is patient to walk us out of that place of hopelessness and into a place of revelation. See, Jesus is not on a timeline like we are. He's not in a hurry like we are, and he will take his time on the journey with you to make sure you end up with the revelation of his love. No matter how long it takes, he will be patient to walk you out of that place of hopelessness. So he begins to walk them on that journey of revelation and out of the place of hopelessness. Then there's a shift that happens in the scriptures. I'm, I'm getting near the end. There's a shift that happens in the scriptures in verse 28 and 29. It says, as they approached the village, Jesus walked on ahead, telling them he was going, on a going to a distant place. Look at this next sentence. They urged him to remain. They urged him to remain and pleaded, stay with us. They urged him to remain and pleaded, stay with us. As Jesus was with them, though they didn't understand, there was something that began to happen on the inside of them. There was a burning that began to happen on the inside of them. And that burning created a longing on the inside of them that when they had the opportunity to part ways, they said, stay with us. Don't leave. They've yet to walk in to the revelation of who was with them. They still, he was still a stranger to them, but they knew that something was burning on the inside of them. And when they had the opportunity to leave his side, they said, don't leave. I can't explain it. I don't understand why you're just some guy we met on the road, but there's something about you that causes us to burn on the inside. And I don't want you to leave. Remain. Remain here with us. Don't depart us, Jesus. Don't leave us. Remain. You know, let me tell you a little secret. 
Jesus wanted to stay. He wanted to stay. But he tells them, I, I'm going to journey on to a distant place. Because here's the deal with the Father. Here's the deal with Jesus. He's not going to invite himself. He's going to give you the opportunity to say, Jesus, stay. Even though I don't understand why my marriage is struggling. Even though I don't understand why my kids have gone crazy. <laughs> Even though I don't understand why there hasn't been any healing in my body yet. Even though I don't understand why I'm struggling like I am financially. Even though I don't understand why my church isn't the way I wanted it to be. Even though I don't understand all of these things, God, there's a burning on the inside of me. And my heart's cry is remain. Stay. Even though I don't understand, stay. There's something about this post-resurrection story that's not like the others. This is the only story where the Bible tells us that God hid his identity from them. That God veiled their eyes so they wouldn't recognize Jesus. Even in the other stories, Mary at first thinks he's the gardener, but then sees who Jesus is. She knows who Jesus is. On the, on the shore, when they're fishing and Jesus is on the shore, John looks and says, it's this Christ, it's the Messiah. And it says that none of them had to question who it was. This is the only resurrection story where the Bible tells us that he hid their eyes, that he covered their eyes. You have to ask the question then, why? Why did Jesus, why did God hide his identity from them? I believe that Jesus, that God the Father hid the, the, Jesus' identity from them because he's teaching them to trust the fire in their belly even before they have the revelation. He's teaching them, listen, you may not understand, but there's going to be something inside of you that says, this is right. There's going to be something inside of you that burns on the inside of you that says, I've got to be in this presence. I don't understand what's happening around me, but there's a burning on the inside of me that says, I can't leave. And Jesus is teaching us through these disciples that, that we have to learn to trust the burning in our spirits, even when we don't have the fullness of revelation yet. Even when we don't fully understand the situation yet, we have to learn to trust the burning Holy Spirit on the inside of our bellies. There are revelations that you feel before you understand. Let me say that one more time. There are things in God, there are revelations that you will feel the burning of it on the inside of you before you have words to articulate what it is. I love how one preacher describes it. He says, it's the tuning forks of your heart. That God will hit a frequency. And even though you don't understand, there's something about that frequency that resonates on the inside of you. And even though you don't fully comprehend it, there's something on the inside of you that says, this is coming alive on the inside of me. I don't understand why. I don't get it, but I do know this. I want to remain. I want to stay in this moment. I want to stay in this revelation. And we have to learn, the or learn to trust the burning in our bellies before the revelation comes.
You know, much of the kingdom is this. That the mysteries of the kingdom, there are things that we don't understand about the kingdom, but because we know the Father, we trust him before we have understanding. And we have to learn, once again, I'll say it one more time, we have to learn to trust the burning in our spirits before the revelation comes. Because then what happens when we remain with the place of burning, right? When we remain in the place of burning, when we remain with the thing that is causing us to burn up on the inside, it moves to something. It moves into communion. The disciples ask Jesus, they plead with him, stay with us, remain here. So Jesus goes to their house. And the Bible says that they sat down at the table, a place of intimacy, a place of friendship, a place of conversation, a place of discovery, a place of communion. And the Bible says that as Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they knew it was him. because they were willing to remain in a place of burning. It moved them to a place of communion and intimacy. And in that place of communion and intimacy, their eyes were open and they had fullness of the revelation of who he was, of who he is. It's in the place of intimacy, church. It's in the place of communion and of friendship. It's in the place of conversation with the Father where he begins to reveal to you what is making your heart burn. He begins to give you not just knowledge. Knowledge can only take you so far. But he begins to give you revelation of what is causing you to burn on the inside in the place of communion? Paul, would you come on up? Let's go ahead and just stand together this morning. Church, I feel this so strong this morning. There are some in this room this morning who have lost themselves in hopelessness. Who have been so lost in hopelessness that it has bred, it has bred a skepticism on the inside of you. And I believe that today the Lord wants to come and walk with you on that journey to take you from a place of skepticism and hopelessness ultimately to a place of communion. I believe even this morning as we are talking about the tuning forks of the heart that God has hit a tuning for and there's something even inside of you this morning and you haven't felt it for a long, long time. But there's something on the inside of you this morning. There's a frequency that's coming alive on the inside of you. There's a burning that's in your spirit even right now that you haven't felt for a long time. And you're gonna have an, uh, an opportunity today to either allow what's causing you to feel that burning to keep walking, or you can have an opportunity to invite him to remain. He wants to lead you out of that hopeless state. He wants to lead you out of that skepticism to a place of burning where he becomes alive in you once again. You've been in a place of sad and gloomy, 
of depression, of hopelessness. And it just seems like that hopelessness keeps building and building upon each other. You see it in your family. You see it, you see it in your own situations. You see it even in the country. Things in this world have caused you to be hopeless. And today God is rekindling that burning on the inside of you. And he's asking you the question today. Do you want me to keep walking? Or do you want me to remain? Do you want me to go on ahead? Or do you want to invite me to your table? Or we can slow down. Or we can have conversations. Where I can give you full revelation and understanding. And I can heal your heart this morning. I know it's a little past what we normally, time that we normally go this morning, and, but I feel that we need to just give the opportunity that if that is you this morning, if there's a burning on the inside of your heart, that I just want to invite you to come to the altar this morning. And in that step of faith and in that act of coming forward, what you're saying there is, Father, I'm inviting you to come into my home. I'm inviting you back into my heart. Jesus, I don't want this burning to leave, but I want it to remain. I don't want to remain in a state of hopelessness and cynicism, but God, I want that burning to remain. And I want revelation to come once again. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit harmonychurchfamily.org.